served with hoorah. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn. Hello, I'm Gabby Dunn and this is Bad With Money, a show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you. As I read Scarred, the memoir of Nexium whistleblower Sarah Edmondson about her 12 years in the MLM-ish cult that resulted in being branded in a secret ceremony, a shocking and brave New York Times expose, and an HBO documentary called The Vow, I couldn't help but take note of how many times money was mentioned. I'd venture to say about one-third of the book featured in-depth discussions about how much the courses and intensives cost, how new recruits were pressured to spend above their means, and the constant misuse of funds. There were also the repeated assertions that along with being celibate, leader of Nexium Keith Raniere, now in jail for 120 years for his crimes, was someone who owned no material possessions. And this was seen as a trait that placed him above other people. Enlightened. Brilliant. Of course, none of it was true. With multi-level marketing schemes like the leggings company LuLaRoe or the dietary supplements Herbalife, the financial component of the scam is obvious. You buy in with the promise of making money as a quote-unquote small business owner who can work from home and who can start living the lavish lifestyles you see other members of the group enjoying. Purses, private jets, cars, etc. With Nexium, however, though it was painted in the media as including an executive success program and other classes and intensives for personal and professional betterment, the main sticking points for those keeping track of the story were, one, celebrity involvement, two, sex crimes, and three, branding women's flesh. All very salacious and horrifying. But what about the money? Finances leapt at me from the pages of Sarah's book and are so clearly part of the cult phenomenon story. On their own podcast, A Little Bit Culty, Sarah and her husband and fellow survivor Anthony Nippy Ames talk about their own experiences and also interview experts and ex-members of cults and other orgs that are, quote-unquote, a little bit culty. With Nexium, right off the bat, Sarah was asked to spend above her means. The tactic alludes to something Lacey Mosley, host of the podcast Scam Goddess, talks about often, which is the despo meter. How desperate a potential recruit or client is, and how immediate the salesperson makes the deal seem. In Sarah's book, she talks about buy now discounts perpetuated by fear of missing out. You have to join now. No time to think, no time to Google. Changing your life takes bold action. The most important point to stress in reconsidering the way we think about cults and cult members and those who are targeted by MLMs is understanding that these people are not idiots or deserving of any shame or scorn. These people are preyed on, and money is a huge part of it. If you're someone who listens to this show, I trust you have the capacity and empathy to understand how finances can be used to manipulate. I hope I don't have to go too in-depth on that for the type of person who understands enough about power dynamics and the false bait of hope of economic mobility and the American dream, aka a listener of Bad With Money, to be able to understand just how many of us would be easy targets for anything that made us feel safe and secure. So money's place is obvious in the world of multi-level marketing and pyramid schemes, which Investopedia defines as an illegal investment scam based on a hierarchical setup. So pyramid schemes are illegal, but multi-level marketing is legal. LuLaRoe is a little bit of a gray area, though not really, just legally, but not ethically. 
With LuLaRoe, the sale of the product eventually took a backseat to the hierarchy where new recruits make up the base of the pyramid and provide the funding or so-called returns in the form of new money outlays to the earlier investors slash recruits structured above them. This is in the definition of pyramid scheme from Investopedia. A pyramid scheme does not usually involve the selling of products. Rather, it relies on the constant inflow of money from additional investors that works its way to the top of the pyramid. So, LuLaRoe initially says it's selling leggings. Eventually, the people that were making the big bucks were the ones that were not selling leggings. They were signing up other people. Anyone who watched the Lula Rich documentary and heard the stories of the women interviewed, including this episode's third guest, Roberta Blevins, can attest that multi-level marketing should be just as illegal as pyramid schemes. LuLaRoe's target was horrible. It was stressed out, vulnerable moms. How could you even go after those people? This is an episode I think is incredibly important with three guests who I'm completely blown away and honored to have on the show. I need everyone who listens to Bad With Money to hear and internalize their messages and information, not just to keep themselves safe, but to be able to point out red flags to loved ones. I am in awe of Sarah, Nippy, and Roberta, and I'm so grateful to have them here to share their stories. So first, Sarah and Nippy. Nippy and I met in a what we thought was a personal and professional development program, a humanitarian group trying to change the world one person at a time. Barf. Turned out it was not that, and when Nippy and I figured out what was going on on the inside, we decided with a group of other whistleblowers to expose the dude who ran the whole thing, and in my opinion, and brought that whole situation to the authorities. Then we had a front page thing in the New York Times, which got the authorities involved and the FBI investigated and had a trial, and now Keith Ranieri is now in jail for 120 years. So that's the short version. Can you explain a little bit about like what Nexium is? And, you know, I don't want to rehash the whole sure. documentary, which people should check out or rehash your book, which people should check out. <laughs> but yeah, can you explain a little bit about what it what it was and how you would financially get involved? Yeah, just so just to say most people join Nexium and there's lots of interesting money stuff, but most people like myself and Nippy both joined did a five what's called a five day training first uh, or something like that, like the introductory course. And I learned later from Keith when he taught me sales is that you brought people in in lifts. Like nobody joined Mm -hmm. with the end. Like if someone said to me, hey, you're going to take this personal development program and then 12 years later you're going to have the initials of the leader seared into your groin. How about that? Right. And this is also one of the things I was going to mention like it's a red flag for your listeners. And it was a red flag for me. Unfortunately, I also really liked the person who invited me, so I ignored this. But there was a sign up now and get a discount. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you sign up in the next 48 hours, you get this discount. And I do, I am the kind of person who likes to save money. I like sales. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, later when I was trained in this, it wasn't, I didn't think it was a bad thing. I was like, well, people are, they're excited now. You get them to sign up while they're excited because they changed their mind. Mm -hmm. So you're just, you're just helping them to lock down and make a commitment while they are excited about it. Mm-hmm. Really, it is get them to lock down before they go on the internet and Google Keith Raniere, <laughs> which happened all the time, by the way. Like we had- and, and There's all sorts of sales techniques to reinforce that. It's all sales. Yeah. Like yeah. You know, the, the whole thing about, do you understand that You know, when most people after 24 hours forget half their information and they rip a piece of paper and then the next 48 hours they rip another piece and by by two days- 
they've remembered 5% of what they've heard. Do you think it's best to make a decision with 5% of the information or 90% of the information? Everyone's like, well, 90. Huh? Well, sign up now. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's fascinating. Were there any other things like that, oh, yeah. like sales? Well, yeah, there's the, there's the Ben Franklin close too, right? Like these are all like tactics. What's so Ben that? Franklin, when he made a decision, would go pros, cons. So he would go, or this would go, I think people have used this in, in, in other aspects too. So in making a decision, I'd have you go, what are the pros? Oh, growth, goals, blah, 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 blah. You list a bunch of pros and then I hand you the piece of paper and go, what are the cons? So I'd help you with the pros and you come up with the cons to go money and be like, well, the reason you're not doing this is because you don't have money, blah, blah. And any objection wow. you have could be spun. And And one of the things that Sarah and I were talking about last night is these tactics are so socially acceptable in our culture. If we were had what we were selling and, and we delivered on it, you know, it would have been, you know, what we thought we were was a good, good tactic, but it actually ended up being abusive at the end of the day. I do want to, I do want to make that point, like for Nippy and I and the other salespeople who didn't know what was going on behind closed doors, all these things that we were doing based on the assumption that this was the best thing ever and was going to help people with their life. We thought that we, I had never considered it as manipulative because I was helping them, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and if they said to me, yeah, I totally want to go, but the con, like Nippy just said, or the, the, the only downside is I don't have the money. And I'm like, great, well, let's just help you find the money. Mm -hmm. And then we would brainstorm with them, like looking all the ways they could like, you know, borrow, they get a loan, they put on credit card, they could sell their clothes on eBay or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like we would just brainstorm. Mm -hmm. And often what we did, and you know this from my book, I paid for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Because I believed in it so much. A lot of that money I didn't get back. <laughs> you know, people didn't pay me back. Well, that's yeah. A, that's what I learned happens. But it was an investment for me. Because mm -hmm. I thought the return would be great because they'd like it. And then they become coaches. And we grow the mission. And everyone live happily ever after. When you talk about it being sort of like a practical MBA or like learning how to do sales, it doesn't seem, I mean, Nippy's right, it doesn't seem that wild because it's how you're taught to do sales if you were selling vacuums. You talk about the lifts. Were there other sort of like language uses for money or for yes. words like or for, for sales? Like what, what did that look like? It was from the beginning because it was value, right? It's mm -hmm. walking you down a path too, right? So it'd be like, Gabby, uh, wouldn't you agree that successful people are the kind of people that are very good in rolling people into their ideas? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, Zig, Zig Ziglar has a book on it. Like, so there, there's books on like leading you down, having you say yes, yes, and yes. And then if you become aware, let's say that I'm leading you down a road, there's certain tactics to go. Is it that you don't trust that I have? What I say I have, and you go, no, but really in the no, you're agreeing with me. Mm -hmm. Not only did we have these tactics, we had a certain self of self-righteousness to what we did. And I think those two things were a recipe for what we ultimately ended up experiencing. I just remembered something, Nippy, like this is, is a huge part of the mission statement. We, we defined things slowly in the first five days. One of the things is value. Like really the goal of what we were doing was building value in the world and good things build value and bad things destroy value and money upholds value. So that, those are like base premises and money is also tribute for the things that, that you find valuable. A lot of people have money issues, like a lot of people have money issues and most people would have, and this is something we talked about in the first five day, in Nexium terms, people would have disintegrations, right? So like 
they think one thing, like I think I want to make money, but they feel bad about having money because maybe their parents said money is the root of all evil or whatever. So right. they have these two conflicting beliefs around money. And if you have a conflicting belief around money, you're going to be bad with money because every time you have it, you'll spend it. And if you don't have it, you feel bad about yourself. Like that's a super common what we used to call a money disintegration. Mm-hmm. We have we have all sorts of disintegrations like sex and you know all everyone's got disintegrations around all sorts of things. But in this particular model, we were really I mean, I, I certainly was helped with my disintegrations around money. I, I say that where I don't have another word for it in reality, but you you know what I mean? Like well, you, belief systems around money. Uh, but my belief yeah. systems yeah. around money were, were, were scripts. We call them yeah, money scripts. My money yeah. scripts were weren't healthy. And so I changed them, but also was very much caught up in this sort of dogma around Nexium, which is that you want to make as much money as possible within your success plan, it's part of the mission statement, so that you can do good things in the world because money is a tool. You know, it's a tool right. to do things, which I also still agree with. But the part that was incorrect that we didn't know about it and the assumption that it was operating on was that Keith was also good. You know, right. So all that changes when you find out he's not right, and, and he's abusing money and other people yeah. with money. So yeah, I wanted to ask about that. Th- this idea that like Keith doesn't own any material possessions. He's a renunciate. Yeah, <laughs> and that comes up a lot with gurus. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, they they live these you know very stripped down lives yeah. or whatever. So what was the talk about him, and how is that a red flag? And how do you figure out like if that's true or not for someone? Well, I think just even understanding that most gurus are going to say that they don't need material possessions because they're so free of their attachments. Mm-hmm. And yet, like, look at their lifestyle. Everyone around them has a lot of resources. Right. Yeah. So that maybe they don't actually own stuff. Like Keith was off grid in a lot of ways. He wasn't in the system, but he didn't need to be because he had a harem of women driving him around and cooking for him. <laughs> like he didn't, mm-hmm. he didn't need to have money. He had access to whatever he needed. So, I mean, he also told us that that we we believed when we were in that he was a celibate also. Mm-hmm. He was so integrated, the opposite of disintegrated, he didn't even need to have sex. Turns out he was having more sex than any of us. <laughs> so he's just a liar. Right. It's, you know, making this person out to be better than human, kind of. Yeah, I think anytime someone's on a pedestal and everyone's like, oh my God, they're so great. And like, like in our case, it's like, well, Keith said this and Keith said that. And Keith said, you only like, you know, how, how is he have those credentials? Like one of the things I always kick myself afterwards is why didn't I ever really do a full background check? Like I just totally believed everything that anyone said about him. Yeah. So they're charging a lot of money up front. And to me, it's like, that's a barrier. But so I'm sort of like, why would, if you want more people in your group, why make it so expensive? But then do you think that that leads to it feeling exclusive yeah. or it leads to people feeling like, well, I have to make the most of it because I spent Both. this much money. Like I'm trying, uh, yeah, can you sure. explain that? Because to my eyes, I'm like, okay, if I'm trying to get people into my group, like make it accessible. Yeah. But then, yeah, making it inaccessible actually works better. Well, two, there's two things. I mean, one of the reasons, like you remember my book when Claire raised the prices for the for the monthly thing, which was relatively inexpensive. It was 200 bucks a month, mm-hmm. which I felt most people can afford. And then she raised it and it ended up being 400 bucks a month. And I'm like, my acting friends, like that's a lot. And she's like, you need to enroll a different type of person, Sarah. You like for, you know, mm-hmm. for, for an executive, 400 bucks a month is nothing. And that's true. But like, so she, her whole thing was like having an, an elite group. And and reaching a certain mm-hmm. level and having the trickle down effect to the 
the people who couldn't afford it. I was I, like, I'm from Canada, all right? I'm socialist. I want everyone to have this, which was something I got in trouble for. That's like, I got in trouble for paying for people. Really? Because, yeah, they didn't want me to do that because then they would feel like the people who got it for free from me wouldn't appreciate it and would devalue it, right? So there was, there was a couple things at play here. One is, and I remember, remember Alex Betancourt? He was a green sash who ran um, the Mexico City Center. He He used to say, and he was like very fancy and very wealthy. Like this in Mexico, it was the upper, 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 upper class, right? Mm-hmm. And he would say, you get what you pay for. I only like the most expensive things. Yeah. You can take Landmark for $300 for a weekend or you can take Nexium for two grand for five days. I'm going to take the best. I want the best of the best. But that being said, there were people who didn't have money that came in, like myself. Like when I came in, I didn't, I was living in a basement suite. My rent was $400 a month. So I took a leap of faith, put it on a credit card. So I encouraged other people to do that. And I Mm -hmm. strongly believed like, you know, if you could take a five-day training and spend two grand and upgrade all areas of your life, your relationship to money and relationship and communication, of course it's worth it. I would have spent 100,000. I believed that. Truthfully, Mm -hmm. I did believe it. The five-day helped me with a lot of things, but it was also the pipeline to Mm -hmm. more spending. And that's, I think, where the major lie is with this and also with MLMs. I know you're having Roberta on later. Yes, I'm so yeah, excited. she's great. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, this, it's the same one. process. It's the same lie. It's like you need to keep going, right? You need, like, if I had just done a five day and moved on with my life, I probably would have been unscathed. And, I mean, I wouldn't be here talking to you now. I wouldn't have met Nippy. I wouldn't have kids. All these things wouldn't have happened. So, so I'm glad that I continued. But the five day in and of itself was like a relatively helpful, not harmful five day, but it did set people up for long-term abuse. The main reason being I felt like I had all these tools, but I was like, but there's something in me that needs to be fixed and this is the only place to fix it. Right. Mm. So I was committing to the path of personal development with Nexium for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. What did you end up being able to to make when you when you got out? Were you like, okay, I have all this Money and no. then like some I asked some fans. No, I asked yeah. some fans what they wanted to know. And someone was saying, like, when you come out, what's your like financial obligation with, you know, what you made off of off of Nexium? That's a great question. I'll let me just give a 12 year timeline. Great. For the first yeah, for the first like four or five years, I was basically an unpaid slave. <laughs> and most people right. in Nexium are this in the same boat. Like you're basically working for free. For a long time. Yeah, for yeah. Like four years. You were doing all this coaching and stuff for no money. And cleaning toilets and setting up food and, you know. Work exchange. Work exchange. You're doing a work exchange. Right. I'm exchanging to learn the tools. And, and, and they didn't pay anyone to do all the things that would run their business. They didn't pay anyone. So everyone was doing work exchanges or exchanging for future curriculum. Then I got to the point where I was getting paid. For a chunk of time in the middle, I was making really good money. And I'm talking anywhere from five grand a month. There was, there was a couple months where I was making like as up to 20 grand a month. It's a lot of mm-hmm. money for a, a woman in her mid-30s. Now, I pay taxes. When you're making it, you pay like mm-hmm. half of that goes to taxes. Our rent in our center was seven grand a month. Mm-hmm. And the Ethos membership, because they kept raising the prices, I was never able to pay the overhead costs with the membership. So I was always fronting the difference. So mo- a, lo- a huge chunk of my money went back into mm. paying for the cost of running the center, which was a terrible business model. That's a whole other, a whole other like red flag tangent. Business models were brutal. The business models were so bad. And if you questioned it, you were being suppressive and you were not upholding what Keith built or you didn't understand or you had a disintegration. 
What was bad about them? Well, it didn't it didn't favor the entrepreneur and anyone yeah. who is actually an acumen in business wouldn't get into business with the company. Yeah. Like as an example, people paying for the ongoing membership, so not the five day or the sixteen day, but like just the membership, we as a center only got ten percent of that. Oh. So if someone yeah, so we would have had to have like hundreds of people paying the monthly to pay for our rent, for our overhead. And they think that partly they set that up because in Albany, the rent was so much cheaper. Vancouver is like, we were in a basement mm-hmm. suite paying $7,000 a month. New York prices. Mm-hmm. It was insane. There was no windows, okay? So that was part of the business model that was bad. Another percentage of it went to the salesperson. So I was using my sales money to pay for the space. So anyway, like all the people that opened centers weren't able to keep it going unless they were already wealthy. Mm. Like all the other center owners were like the Bronfmans. So those are, you know, billionaires. And then the son of the former president of Mexico. Okay. Like, Mm -hmm. and then there's me. So again, I became the poster child, the first person who's actually running a center, but like scraping by. So anyway, I'm using my sales money to pay for the center and also to pay myself for what I'm doing, which is coaching. So I wasn't actually getting paid to coach. I was getting paid to sell. And I used my sales money to pay for everything. So by the time we got out, it was not 20 grand a month anymore. It was like three grand, five grand a month, which is given the Mm -hmm. amount of money that like how hard I was working. And Nippy can attest to this. We never had downtime. With one of the companies that I was in, they were six months behind paying me. Yeah. And how did you justify that? I did. You were mad? We were upset about <laughs> it. I got pissed. Yeah. He, he, and I, I brought it up to Claire and she said I was being entitled. Oh, of course. My company was a different company and it was with I was I was the head of it with someone else who had access to Keith and the payment options. He's like, he's got a special way about how people are paid and only he understands it. I'm like, Jim, how am I supposed to get paid? I'm doing my own math over here and I'm owed close to fifty K. Right. Right. And he's like, well, Keith has an equation that he makes sure all the value gets to the people that are actually producing the value. So it's very complicated. And I went in a week before I left because I knew I was owed money. And I told Lauren, because she was asking me to do something else. I was like, look, I can't afford it. Right. I don't have any money. I'm, I'm owed money. And she writes a text to Keith. And she's like, I spoke to Keith. He says, talk to Jim about getting paid. And I go to Jim, <laughs> who's a guy I was checked it. Listen to this. So- and I, I was at 50 grand. I go, Jim, I want to get paid for like what I did since, you know, this is May. I want to get paid from what I did since September, August. And he's like, well, what do you estimate? And I was like, 50 grand. He's like, so what do you want the check? And I was going to go for the full 50 because I knew I was out at this time. But then I thought that might be a little obvious. And I go 30. And, and this is this is right after I dropped Sarah off. At the FBI. At the FBI. <laughs> so she's down oh at the God. FBI telling her story. I'm driving up to go get the checks, one for 16 grand, one for 14 grand. I go in, deposit it at 4.30 p.m. on a Friday before it closes at 5. I put it in my bank account. I go back and pick up Sarah from the FBI. I was not so lucky. And I got a 30 (laughs) grand severance package, basically. Oh, my God. You should have just got the whole 50. You were already out. Well, here's the thing. I was going to, but then I thought it may tip him off that like I'm piecing out. Yeah. Because there was like- There was rumbling. Mark had just stepped down. There was, there, the organization had just gotten a gut punch. Mm-hmm. And I was going to leave it and start delivering some of those gut punches. But in answer mm-hmm. to your question about what did it, you know, what's my responsibility when leaving, which, which I think is a great question and something I'm, you know, I'm totally happy to answer. But ultimately, a couple things happened. First, we, we got people out of their monthly- commitments because people were paying on their credit card. So 
actually it was my assistant at the time went in. I didn't even know how to do this because I had an assistant who would enter the applications. She went in and canceled the ongoing payments. Like she took the credit card information out of the system. Great. Mm -hmm. Didn't ask her to do it. Really happy she did it. It would have had to happen eventually. But that's what Claire Bronfman came after me for, for fraud. And she came to the Vancouver Police Department (laughs) saying that we committed fraud. And after much investigation, and I had to hire a criminal lawyer, which by the way, cost 10 grand, just a little sidebar. My legal legal expenses were really high. But anyway, the Vancouver Police were like, it would be fraud if Sarah took the money. But I love that they're like, no, we didn't do fraud. You yeah. did fraud. And they're, like, yeah. and they're like, no, I didn't. And also the police called everyone on the list whose credit cards were canceled. And they're like, yeah, we don't want to take this anymore because it's a cult. <laughs> and so the police right. were like, right. we can't really get Sarah for fraud because there wasn't fraud. They just stopped the payments of a program they don't want to take. Then the other thing that we did that we I think was brilliant is that, and this is one of our students suggested this who has a business, is that we had everyone call them, themselves, call Visa and ask for what's called a chargeback, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't find this out till later, I think till after the book was written from someone who stayed in way after us named Karen. And she said that that really demolished them because there were so many chargebacks against Nexium that the Visa and MasterCard and everyone held, froze their accounts so they didn't have access to funds anymore. So that really demolished them. So what Nippy and I, in terms of like, what's our responsibility, we've tried to get get a hold of everybody who we can and say like, did you have a good experience or do you want your money back? And people who want their money, most of the people who want their money back are the people who became coaches and invested a lot and maybe went into more debt. People who generally who took a five day or 16 day is like, you know what? Two grand, five grand, like I got my money's worth. Mm-hmm. Didn't ruin my life. Keep going, guys, just generally. And my lesson. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> most people didn't get hurt, but the people who did are the ones that like moved to Albany or mm-hmm. like yeah. got roped into the harem and things like that. So those are the people that we're trying to help through a class action lawsuit, which is in process. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So we're trying to, trying to get people at least their money back and at least cover like future therapy or damages for any mental challenges they've experienced and... Also, through my book, I provided a fund for therapy for people who wanted therapy, like legitimate therapy with a cult expert, which is not cheap. Right, so, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm doing my best. You know, we're, we're open to suggestions. I, I feel like, you know, cleaning up my mess has been a big part of this, considering I was such a big recruiter. Sure. But I think also for me and my own conscience and like morality, just being loud, as loud as I was on the other end about why these things are bad and and happening to educate people, Mm -hmm. that's what I need to do to fix it for me. Right. A lot of people were asking like red flags up top or like what's the difference between like a community and a cult? Let's say someone's like, I joined this thing and I'm paying a little bit of money for it. Like and they're listening to this or whatever, like Mm -hmm. what are the big things that you want them to take away or you wish that they would pay attention to? Sure. I mean, right off the top, I'd say like if there's a pressure to sign up for something, there's a discount or like there's a limited window or a limited amount of spots or like, you know, you have to decide right away and you can't wait to think about it or talk to someone or do research or something like that, that's a huge red flag. And there's a lot of communities. Like, look, I really love community. Community is really important. I'm a little allergic still, and I'm very, very skeptical. Oh, trust <laughs> issues? Interesting. Yeah, major <laughs> trust issues. But like the major red flags, and jump in anytime here, Nip, but like a leader, having a leader who's charismatic and everyone has on a pedestal and can't be questioned, right? It's not accountable to anybody. The red flags, well, is there a problem if you if you leave? Yeah, mm-hmm. like what happens to people who leave? The love bombing that goes on originally. And if it's somebody saying like, hey, I'm part of this thing and I'm paying money, like questions you could ask are, 
oh, great. Like, who's teaching it? Like, what's, what's their background? Mm-hmm. You know, asking about the credentials and how much does that cost? What's that money go to? And like, what do you what do you get at the end? Like, at the end, we'd get a sash. But like, how is that really helpful for the rest of the world? You know what I mean? Like, I, <laughs> I was a proctor and I could be a proctor and I was making 10% of all my sales or whatever. That's great. But I wasn't allowed to do what I was doing outside of Nexium. Right. People are asking if they have a friend who messages them and they're in an MLM or they have a friend who seems to be getting involved. Like, what, what can you do? I think it depends on the relationship and what the yeah. thing is. But like, I've had people invite me, if you believe it or not, to like Stop. do it. Yeah, for real. Recently. And somebody, Gabby, one was, one was like somebody who I knew from Nexium. Who I haven't seen in since I left, and she started liking my photos and ca- engaging with me on social media, and I'm like, so good to hear from you. Like, I guess you're out. Like, I didn't know like, you're out, and she's like, oh yeah, therapy, I'm out, and now I'm doing this new home based business, and I thought of you because you're so outgoing, and like, I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you have any idea what we just came out of? Yeah. So, and I said, no, 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 she doesn't. and so, and like, I'm a bit more brazen now. I, I will say things. I actually just got out of a cult and, and I'm not going to do it again, you know, right. or if anyone ever says anything like that, say I'm not super skeptical of, of joining anything without doing my research. Have you done your research? Do you know who these people are? Mm-hmm. Have you watched The Vow? <laughs> you know what? In all seriousness, I would say to your listeners, if someone says involved with something and it seems a little bit culty, I would, I would say... Look, I'm really happy for you. Got my support. Just based on some things that I've seen and read recently, I have some red flags. Are you open to discussing them with me? Or like, would you be open to getting a little more information? I hate for you to get sucked into something like X, Y, and Z did, you know? Yeah. Like we were trained, as you know from the book, to, to with that defense. Oh, yeah, people say we're a cult. It's a cult of happy, successful people. I'm not sure what's bad about it. Like we couldn't see the bad thing, right? right? So I think the word can be good because it can sort of shake people, but it also can make people very defensive. So sometimes I don't even use the word and just say, in a company like that or a business or an organization like that, I see some problems mm-hmm. based on my experience, you know, that some, some even just abuses of power. Mm-hmm. The main problem, and Keith even said this to me, and there's a chapter called The Illusion of Hope. The problem is, is it's not possible. What you're signing up for isn't an illusion. Yeah. And they're saying, like, you can have all these things and have a Hummer in Hawaii and, like, if that's whatever. whatever You can have your dreams. It's a lie. It's a lie. Mm-hmm. It's a lie. It's a lie by the person perpetrating it, which is the hardest thing to reconcile because the person that greets you with this opportunity and this kind of noble vision is knowingly putting up a lie to con you to go get you to do something to your life. It's the ultimate abuse. And it's a slow burn. Yeah, but they're using altruistic people like ourselves. Mm-hmm. Keith wasn't out there recruiting. Keith was using people like us who really believed it. Right. So it was true for us. Right. That's that's the worst thing. Which, which is a better salesman, the person who's selling something truthfully as opposed to someone who's conning you. For real. I was selling it for real. Of course. That's how yeah. Mark got you. The, the lie served in so many ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so like, if, if people are being brought into something, they're going in based on a really true experience. Someone they trust is saying, hey, check out this. Right. You know, this skincare is going to change your life and you can have a home-based business and take after your kids. And like, what sounds great? Yeah. But I'll make a distinction too. They really believed what they were doing right? in their heart of hearts. And their morality was on the hook and on the line because they were vouching for something. And so to morally get behind something on such a deep level and be so wrong and have the person who was selling you the morality right. story be the immoral person, 
it's a difficult thing to reconcile. It's a difficult abuse to reconcile. Yes. And so now, it, I'm not going to say it gives me a, a, a jaded view of the world in a sense, but it really lets me believe and I look at things in a way now as like, it's actually most likely that person might be that way until they prove me otherwise. That's... And I wasn't like that before. I was more trusting. Yeah, that's what sucks. But I'm more discerning. I don't think it sucks. Really? It does suck. It sucks for me. Because I can still be optimistic. Yeah, I can still be optimistic mm -hmm. and have wisdom without the negative, without it hurting my optimism. Yeah. Tell my audience where to find you. Sarah Edmondson um, for me and also uh, a little bit culty for <laughs> us. And my book and all that stuff is on there and... Nippy's a Nippy. Are you Nippy Ames or Anthony? No, I'm Anthony Ames 11 because <laughs> Anthony Ames is taken. Who, who is it? Yeah, who did that? <laughs> but also I want to say if anyone's listening and they got out of something, we're also part of a movement called hashtag I got out. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's for people who want to share their stories and blow the lid off the shame. And like, you know, a lot of these things wouldn't exist if people talked about it more. So yeah, that's our thing. Hear from Roberta Blevins, an anti-MLM activist and one of the breakout stars of the Lula Rich documentary, which showed the devastating effects the shady and insidious company had on women's financial and mental health. Hey, my name is Roberta Blevins, and I am an anti-MLM advocate. So you were in the Lula Rich documentary. Yep. So what was that documentary about loosely? So the Reader's Digest version would be it, it's a four-part documentary about the company LuLaRoe, which is a multi-level marketing company or a, a legal pyramid scheme, as you might know them as well. And it's sort of kind of the rise and fall of the company and how fast it grew, how fast people joined, how fast bad stuff started happening and how fast we figured it out. <laughs> yeah. What year did you start and how did you start? So I first heard of LuLaRoe in 2015, but I didn't actually join until March of the following year in 2016. And I stayed until September of 2017, the following year. So I was in roughly 19-ish months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was in a mom group on Facebook and there was just another mom that was sharing photos of these brightly colored leggings that she had gotten and... I looked into it and I saw that there was matching ones for kids and my daughter was really young and I thought, hey, like if any time she's going to match me, like it'll be now. And I joined a couple groups and I watched how everything was flying off the shelves. Like I seriously would would get to a party, which is what they call them uh, when you go to buy. I'd get to a party 10 or 15 minutes late because I had, you know, come home from work and most everything was already gone. And it was this frenzy and it reminded me a lot of Beanie Babies. And I saw how mm -hmm. it was growing really fast. And I was always looking for a way to not go out of town. I was a hairstylist that left town to LA once a month. And I, again, small daughter, and I didn't want to miss a lot of those really fun firsts. And that was sort of like the whole reason that I was a hairstylist with a flexible schedule anyway. And I wanted to bring everything home. Again, this is how multi-level marketing companies get you. I was vulnerable. I had a lot of like, if onlys. And this mm -hmm. company seemed to answer all of the questions, at least on the surface. And so I decided to start looking into it and bit the bullet in 2016 to join. How much knowledge did you have of like other companies like this I know like you know there's that that thing that I knew about which was like Avon lady calling or whatever but I I had no, if someone had pointed this out to me at that time I would have not 
had any sort of history of the, you know, of what it is or any sort of idea that this was like anything unusual. What was your knowledge of this kind of thing? Well, absolutely. You hit it on the head. It's like, it's been so normalized in our lives. MLMs became quote unquote legal in the eyes of the government in 1979. I was born in 1981. So my entire life, they've been legal. They've been commonplace. We have vintage Tupperware sugar scoops. Like I have mm-hmm. MLM stuff all over my house and I'm, you know, radically anti-MLM, but it's it's here. It's been in my life my entire life. I understood like, oh, those are pyramid schemes or, oh, those are scams. And I had actually been a part of a different MLM before I even joined LuLaRoe and had been in and seen it. And I was like, this is not like anything I'm interested in being in. And I left within three months. So I, I had a little bit of knowledge, but just the basic amount of knowledge that most people on the internet have, like those are pyramid schemes. You'd be stupid to join one. But it's so much deeper than that. And it goes so much deeper than that. Mm-hmm. And and really, that was the extent of my knowledge. And even looking up LuLaRoe, I looked, I, I Googled, is LuLaRoe a scam? Is LuLaRoe a pyramid scheme? I looked for those things. I didn't inherently know that MLM equaled pyramid scheme, or I would have been like, oh, this is a total red flag. I didn't know that. And that's something that a mm-hmm. lot of people don't inherently know. But I thought I did my due diligence. There was nothing in 2015 and 2016 early that I could find mm-hmm. that, that was negative about LuLaRoe in terms of me not wanting to be a part of this. And so I felt pretty confident, in fact. Right. And all of this information I was getting was also coming from inside the organization. So it was like, yes, I can do this. I'm a rock star. Let's go. And I just, I hit the ground running. Yeah, because you, at the time, you're like, there's a product. We're selling a product. So can you explain like how slowly it goes from that to something else? Yeah. So you join one of these companies, these business in a box kind of things. You don't know that you can, you don't know that you can get a wholesale license and and find all these things on your own if you just put a little bit of time and effort into it. It just seems easier, which is like the whole point. It's a built-in brand recognition. Absolutely. Like I'm a rep for this brand. Like they're already very well known and market saturated and many people that have been churned out very quickly in their time in it as well you don't know about all that stuff it's very well hidden right they 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 do that intentionally it's very hard to find that information you join these very innocuously thinking oh my gosh like how easy i can now sell this lipstick that i really like just like in my office like while my baby sleeps what a wonderful opportunity And so that's how it starts, right? You join the first three months or you're going to be your most successful months in terms of like, oh my God, it works if you work it because your warm market wants to support you. Even if your mom Mm -hmm. is like, ugh, another one of these things, she's still going to buy something from you. She's still going to buy a lipstick or a pair of leggings or like a weight loss vitamin pack, something like that. And most of these MLMs will have, I mean, unfortunately, these like three month auto ships. So you get somebody locked in for three months. LuLaRoe didn't have that, but a lot of them do. And there's a lot of rush. There's a lot of dopamine. Mm -hmm. Maybe some people have never experienced that much dopamine at at one time. Or maybe people like me that have ADHD don't have a lot of dopamine. So when you get that dopamine, you're like, yes, this is exactly what I've been looking for. This fuels me. This fills my cup. This is everything I've been looking for. So all of those feelings and all of those emotions are there, unfortunately. (laughs) They use it. (laughs) I was so struck by how important the illusion of success was. How important it was to 
show everyone on your Facebook, I have a Louis Vuitton bag because of this. Absolutely. So like, and it's sales, right? So like how much went into showing yourself as like a successful brand? Because I imagine at a certain point, you don't even have to recruit as hard as people are coming to you to be like, Roberta, how do I get in on this? Absolutely. That's exactly what happens. And a lot of these MLMs are using this tactic now because of influencer marketing and how easy it looks <laughs> to be mm-hmm. an influencer and to be a personal brand. And I'm telling you right now, it is not easy. I I do it and it is not easy. And so MLMs take advantage of the fact that everybody wants to be famous and everybody wants to be this personal brand and everybody wants to like, oh my God, buy my lipstick from her because she has this following and she makes really good chocolate chip cookies too. Like it's this whole like fake feminist I can be the Pinterest mom that has it all and does it all and you can do it too and I can show you how. Like it's impossible. Like there's, it's not, it's not sustainable. It's just not mentally, physically, emotionally, like psychologically, it's just not sustainable to be that person 24 seven. But for three months you think you can and you get in and you get addicted and it's this amazing thing and you buy all this stuff and you get indoctrinated. And at that time you now have all these opportunity costs and these sunk costs. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm in this. I'm all in. I'm all in. Oh my God. The most stressful parts of the documentary. I mean, there were a lot of stressful parts, but one stressful part was the idea that you get all this money and you, like you said, you reinvest it then into the LuLaRoe or you reinvent, you're encouraged to like have a luxury car and a bigger home, thus to show off that you are successful in LuLaRoe because I was like okay these people are making so much money my partner was like well what were, why weren't they saving it or investing in the stock market and I was like because they had to look successful for LuLaRoe absolutely so it's this whole machine right mm-hmm. first of all let's just let everybody know that MLMs are not businesses they're utopian ideas that just like are complete fallacies and, and can never work mm-hmm. at its most perfect ideation of an MLM at 15 levels of recruitment like you run out of people on earth and that's including like third yes. world countries and tribes that don't even know what MLMs are and people that are on their deathbeds and babies that were literally mm-hmm. just born yesterday. Like, right. you got to recruit all of those people in too for this to work. And that's just one MLM. And there's over 350. So it's like, it's just, Still? yeah, it's a Hydra. You chop off one, a bunch more pop up. They rebrand, they rename, they say, look what we are now. Hi, we're now this. It happens all the time. It's really insidious. They're all legal. I mean, they're yeah. legal in the sense that they escape yeah. as long as they're not a pyramid scheme. Right. I mean, and they, but they are pyramid schemes. And literally, right. like, if you call yourself an MLM, you have a completely different set of rules as a business than a regular business. And there are all these ridiculous loopholes. You don't have to have an income disclosure statement if you don't want to. What? No. You just choose to do that. It's it's totally optional in an MLM. You don't need to have it. I mean, you look extra red flag scammy if you don't have one. But if you do have one and you actually interpret those numbers, it's very obvious that, you know, um, the majority of people, at at least 95%, are making pennies. What part does we're all friends play in it. That's the part that I hate the most. Yeah. Okay. So I talk about this on my podcast. Uh, We call that affinity fraud. And it is using your personal connections with people to scam them, right? So we see it a lot in church, especially with MLM in church. Lots and lots and lots of scamming. We've made many call to actions on my podcast for people that are in churches and organizations to talk to the heads of their organizations and to say, hey, can we set some rules in place so we're not selling in church to these people? using affinity fraud to scam our friends and our family, 100%. So you're using the affinity fraud outside of the MLM to get people in. 
And then once you're in, you're using that affinity fraud, this fake feminism, this fake sisterhood, this fake friendship, this fake community to scam and, and manipulate people inside as well. It's a complete hierarchy. Everybody likes to say you own your own business and your own boss, but in an MLM, that's not true. You definitely have an upline to answer to. You definitely have a downline that's going to answer to you as well. If you break any of the policies and procedures, which are the rules of MLM, which if you actually owned your own business, you wouldn't have, you can be terminated for any right. reason. Can you talk about how these places go after women and like what the red flags, you know, should be for that? Because I don't see a lot of men doing MLMs. Yeah, you know, the statistic is about 26% men that join MLM. So it is just really a lot more weighted, weighted yeah. on women. I will say that the one thing mm. that you need to be to be indoctrinated and lured into a cult, a high demand group, an MLM, which we call commercial cults, the only thing you need to be is vulnerable and in a vulnerable place and be willing to maybe try something you've never tried before because you feel like you've done everything and nothing's ever worked. So if you're at that point in your life, even if you haven't told people, but you're in pre-contemplation of that, like you are very vulnerable to these companies coming in and saying, I've got all the answers, and, you know, and, and they're going to promise you everything. Also, the red flags, first and foremost, is know that you yourself are in a vulnerable state. That is the first red flag. You have to know, oh, my God, I am just susceptible to this right now. Secondly, we talk about not only the written red flags, but also the ones that you would hear as a linguist. Mm -hmm. Like, what are these words? Why are they causing us to feel this way? Why are they so loaded? And how are they so loaded? You're, you're going to use every sense that you have that you can when you're when you're mm -hmm. when you're looking at opportunities. So use your eyes and your ears and also use that little feeling inside of you. We call that our conscience, or our Jimmy Cricket. Mm -hmm. the, the, the real word is cognitive dissonance. And it's that really uncomfortable feeling when you're like, there's two things here that I believe in, but they're contradictory of themselves. So mm -hmm. that you want to also listen to that feeling. A lot of people ignore that. It is your Jiminy Cricket saying, um, you should probably dig a little deeper than you are. Here are some things that you might read or see or listen on social media. And you're like, that's a red flag. Anybody offering you an amazing business opportunity. Ding, ding, ding. That's the first one. That's that's it. If they're going to call it, any other name besides multi-level marketing, because there is a stigma because of the anti-MLM movement, they have changed their name to many other things. It is called network marketing, social selling, mm -hmm. direct selling, consumer selling. They call it all kinds of things. Social selling. Oh yeah, my social God. selling. We're oh just sell selling it on our social medias. We're just recommending things to our friends. One of the biggest red flags I'm going to let you know is if they are defending themselves against not being a pyramid scheme. I will let you know that pyramid schemes and multi-level marketing companies are the only people that will defend themselves against being a pyramid scheme and also will teach the people in the pyramid scheme what to say if it comes up as well. That is the only, yep. the only people. So absolutely those. Anything that's unlimited, unlimited income, time freedom, financial freedom, anything like that. Anything that sounds yeah. unbelievably too good to be true. Okay. Well, I here's <laughs> those are all red flags. Uh, this is another question about demographics, which is like, why is this white people? <laughs> so it is more white people. I don't have the statistics, but I would probably say at least 70 to 80 percent is white people. At least, at least. But I will say, again, there are certain MLMs that will target minorities, BIPOCs, different communities. I see a lot of people in the black communities getting targeted for these like Forex trading it's a foreign exchange 
like a Bitcoin and crypto type stuff. Interesting. Very much so. And it's not a crypto MLM. It's a crypto training MLM where they're selling a training course. Interesting. And the money to get is in selling and recommending in an affiliate, quote unquote, which it's not. The crypto training. More training courses and to join your team and to you become the manager of this like office. It's, you know. My final question is, if you know someone who hits you up with that, what can you do? Well, the first thing that you should do is really just educate yourself so you know there's a lot of facts. Secondly, you have to understand that the person that's approaching you loves you and that you most likely love them too. Mm -hmm. And they are stuck in a commercial cult. Mm -hmm. The information they're being given is being fed to them by the organization. They are being told not to look outside. Any bad information is negative. Mm -hmm. Any bad information is being told to them by a hater. Mm -hmm. If you are too aggressive with them, they will cut you off. Like being told directly from the MLM. Cut them off. They're negative. You don't want that negativity in your life. There are so many ways to support the people you love without buying into their MLM because it doesn't support them. It gives them false hope that this is actually a viable business opportunity for them. They're like, oh my God, I made a sale. It works. That's not true. It's not about the person. It's about the business model. So a lot of times they're going to take any sort of criticism as a personal attack. Yep. You also have to really let them know this is not about you at all. This is about the business structure. Also, at the end of this, you have to be prepared that most likely they're going to not agree with you. Yeah. I never block people, especially when they come at me and they attack me. I just tell them, I know you don't, you feel like you don't need me now, but I will still be here when you do need me. Yes. I don't block people. They can block me all they, they want and they do. They also have emailed me saying, I unblocked you and I watched your videos and you are absolutely right. And I've just left my MLM and I wanted to say thank you. Mm -hmm. That cognitive dissonance stayed in there a little bit and was like, hey, what that girl said, that happened to you. Like, why are you denying it? It's a long game sometimes. And the stigma of being in an MLM and share those stories with people when they say, why? Don't just be like, because they're predatory and I don't like them. Be vulnerable with people and say, look, I was in XYZ. And this is what happened to me. Yeah. And this is why I don't want to do these things because I have experience and it hurt me. People connect with that personalization of trauma like that. Yes. But always just be supportive. Where can people find you and find out more about you? Okay. So you can Google me. I'm super Googleable. But (laughs) uh, you can find me on my website, RobertaBlevins.com. It is super bare bones, but it's a good landing point because I do get taken down on social media a lot. I have a lot of people that don't like when I say the truthful things about their companies and they mass report me. So that's always a good place to find me and where I'm at. But my podcast is called Life After MLM and you can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you again to Sarah, Nippy and Roberta for coming on Bad With Money and sharing your insights. If you're listening to this and any of it raised your hackles, made you worry, made you defensive, maybe opened up a little pit of doubt in your stomach, I encourage you to follow that feeling and never believe it's too late or that you're in too deep. You can always, always ask for help, get out and protect yourself and your future. Plus, anything can be or become a cult, a workplace, a family, anything. Believe me, I used to work for BuzzFeed. Done.